Let's turn to the back of the hymn book, our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20, page 880. And then we'll open the Word of God to the New Testament book of Galatians in the fifth chapter. Lord's Day 20, the question is asked, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. Second, that He is given also to me, so that through true faith He makes me share in Christ and all His benefits, comforts me, and will remain with me forever. Now open your Bibles to... Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, focusing primarily on the 16th verse, but also the surrounding context. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we... Through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, 
there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Whenever we confess our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed, we declare that we believe in the Holy Spirit. It is one of the fundamental truths of the Christian faith, one of the essential doctrines of Scripture. Unfortunately, however, the person and work of the Holy Spirit are often misunderstood. There are two equally serious errors that we Christians seem to fall into. On the one hand, there are the errors of some in charismatic churches who are obsessed with their doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There's such a strong emphasis on the leading of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit that personal experience is often elevated over the objective truths of Scripture. Truth is determined by personal experience rather than Scripture. Far too many charismatic experiences are utterly detached from the revealed will of God. And some charismatic experiences are even contrary to Scripture. There are so-called faith healers who slay people in the Spirit. One faith healer said that when he feels the anointing come upon his hand, he touches his followers on, their, on the forehead or simply waves an arm at them and they fall down in a faint. On his television broadcast, people are slain in the Spirit nearly every week. Sometimes he releases the anointing on an entire auditorium, causing most of the crowd to fall backward. What his followers don't seem to realize is that the charismatic practice of slaying people in the Spirit is not found in Scripture. It is utterly silent about such a gift. Because of their emphasis on the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit based on experience rather than Scripture, many charismatics embrace doctrinal error mysticism, and some other bizarre practices. They also contribute to confusion in worship. But brothers and sisters, while on the one hand there are the excesses of the charismatics who tend to focus primarily on the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, there are some non-charismatics who practically ignore the person and work of the Holy Spirit altogether. I believe it was in the early 1900s that the Dutch theologian Abram Kuyper made the observation that the Holy Spirit was the neglected person of the Trinity. Sometimes as Christians, we focus on God the Father and the doctrine of creation, and God the Son and our redemption. But we neglect God, the Holy Spirit, who is also active in the work of our salvation and sanctification. Charismatic mysticism can be very dangerous. But ignoring the Holy Spirit can be equally dangerous. We need to honor the Spirit as He is revealed in Holy Scripture. And in Galatians 5.16, we have these instructive words from the Apostle Paul. I say then, walk 
in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. As we focus our thoughts on this verse, I want us to ponder three things. First, who is the Holy Spirit? Second, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? And third, what is the alternative to walking in the Spirit? In the first place, we want to ask the question, who or what is the Holy Spirit? In both the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 20, and the Belgian Confession, Article 11, we confess that the Holy Spirit is true and eternal God. However, not everyone agrees with that confession. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, speak of the Holy Spirit as God's active force and not a person. They teach that He is the invisible active force of Almighty God, which moves his servants to do his will. They speak of the Holy Spirit as a power rather than a person. But the Bible is unmistakably clear that the Holy Spirit is a divine person and not merely a force, the third person of the Trinity. The Bible uses personal pronouns when referring to the Spirit. So, for example, Jesus said in John 16, when he... The Spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. You see those personal pronouns. The Bible also speaks of the Holy Spirit performing tasks that can only be accomplished by a person. The Holy Spirit comforts, admonishes, convicts, guides, teaches, and so forth. Only a person could do such things, not an impersonal force. The Bible also warns us not to sin against the Spirit, resist the Spirit, or grieve the Spirit. To say that the Holy Spirit can feel the emotion of being grieved is to imply that He is a person. Impersonal forces cannot be grieved. Furthermore, the Bible is unmistakably clear in depicting the Holy Spirit as possessing divine attributes. He possesses the qualities of God. For example, the Holy Spirit possesses omniscience. Omniscience. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.10, For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. The spirit possesses omniscience. He also possesses omnipresence. Omnipresence. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Omnipresence. The Spirit also possesses omnipotence. Omnipotence. In Luke 1.35, the Spirit is called the power of the highest. 
And the Apostle Paul acknowledged that the mighty signs and wonders which he performed were by the power of the Spirit of God, Romans 15, 19. The Spirit possesses omnipotence. The Spirit is also described as being eternal. Hebrews 9.14 calls him the eternal Spirit. Only God is eternal, therefore the Holy Spirit must be God. All these divine attributes are ascribed to the Holy Spirit. He is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, and eternal. But not only does the Bible ascribe divine attributes to the Holy Spirit, it also speaks of him as performing divine works. Performing divine works. Certain works that he performed proved that the Spirit is God. For example, the Spirit was involved in the work of creation. Genesis 1 verse 2, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Job 26.13 tells us that by His Spirit He adorned the heavens. Psalm 104 verse 30 says, You send forth your Spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. These passages indicate that the work of creation was superintended by the Holy Spirit. Another divine work of the Spirit is giving the Holy Scriptures giving the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Spirit was involved in the work of Scripture inspiration. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally, God breathed. In 2 Peter 2.21, Peter said, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was active in the divine work of Scripture inspiration, producing the Holy Scriptures. A third divine work of the Spirit involved the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is found in Luke chapter 1. Mary was struggling, you remember, to comprehend the announcement of the angel Gabriel. And she said, how can this be, since I do not know a man? The angel then said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. You see, the Holy Spirit was active in the work of begetting Jesus Christ. So, the deity of the Holy Spirit is seen in the divine attributes that He possesses, and in the divine works that he accomplished, the work of creation, the work of inspiration, the work of begetting Jesus Christ, and no doubt others could be mentioned as well. But another clear indication of the full divinity of the Holy Spirit is found in John 14. Would you please turn with me for just a moment to John 14 and go down to verse 16. John 14. Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure. They were rather anxious that Jesus wanted to calm their troubled hearts. John 14 and verse 16. And I will pray the Father, 
and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Now, how do we see from this verse that the Holy Spirit is fully divine? Although it is not explicit, I believe it is implied. Clearly, how? Well, Jesus compares the ministry of the coming Holy Spirit to his own ministry. An important word in verse 16 is another. You see it there? Another helper. In Greek, you see there are two different words for another. There is the word heteros, which means totally different, and there is the word alos, which means another that is identical. Which word do you think is used here? It is the word alos, another that is identical, or another just like the first one. In other words, Jesus was telling his disciples that even though he would not be physically present with them, he would send precisely the same kind of helper as he was. He would send the disciples a person just like himself. Who was the first helper? Jesus was. He had been the disciples' source of strength and counsel during the years of his earthly ministry. He had encouraged, challenged, led, and at times even rebuked them. Everything he did was for their well-being and growth. Now, he was going away. But in his place, he would be sending a second helper who was just like him. He would send another divine being to live with them and in them. And so the Holy Spirit, like Jesus, is fully divine. He is, as our Belgian Confession says, of one and the same essence and majesty and glory with the Father and the Son. He is true and eternal God as the Holy Scriptures teach us. The Spirit is not merely a mystical or impersonal force. He's a divine person the third person of the Trinity. And because he is a divine person, we are to worship him, pray to him, obey him, love him, and serve him. We are to render him the honor that he deserves. One theologian said, the Holy Spirit is a person to be loved, not a buzz to be felt. The Holy Spirit is a person to be loved, not a buzz to be felt. So that's point number one. Point number two, our second question, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Go back to Galatians 5 and verse 16, Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit. Paul sets before us a command. What does it mean? In verses 16 to 26, the apostle describes a fierce conflict that rages within the Christian. There is an inner conflict, a civil war that is fierce and unremitting. The opponents in this conflict are called the flesh and the spirit. You might say that they are like two powerful wrestlers, each trying to push the other out of the ring. The flesh is what we are by nature. It describes what we are in our fallen condition, what we are by natural birth. The flesh is the old man of sin and corruption, that part of us that does not want what God wants. 
The Spirit is the Holy Spirit who regenerates, renews, and sanctifies. The Holy Spirit gives us a new nature. He dwells in believers, directing, guiding, leading, and weaning us away from the flesh. One author has said, the flesh stands for what we are by natural birth, the spirit what we become by new birth, the birth of the spirit. Let me say that again. The flesh stands for what we are by natural birth, the spirit what we become by new birth, the birth of the spirit. These two, the flesh and the spirit, are strongly opposed to one another, and this creates a constant conflict within the Christian. It was this conflict that Paul himself expressed in the book of Romans. He said in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. I find that a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. The apostle certainly understood the fierce inner conflict, the civil war within himself. He knew how the flesh battled against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. He knew how the flesh continued to tempt and seduce. The passions of the sinful nature are at war with the desires of the regenerate nature. The remains of the old man, the old nature, creates tremendous conflict. The flesh stands against the work of the spirit, and the spirit often halts the desires of the flesh. The flesh opposes the desires that come from the spirit, and the spirit restrains the destructive tendencies of the flesh. They are mortal enemies locked in deadly combat. Because of this frustrating tension, the Apostle Paul cried out, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The Christian life is warfare. And this warfare is difficult, tiring, and draining. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. The struggle that Paul expressed is your struggle and my struggle. You know how powerful the flesh can be, how persuasive, convincing, and enticing. You know how easily you cater to the demands of the flesh, only to regret it later on. You know how readily you give in, only to weep because of your folly. I've blown it again. I've failed again. That is the experience of every believer. Congregation, it is because of this battle, this warfare, that we so desperately need the power of the Spirit of God. Martin Luther said, there are two contrary captains in you, the flesh and the Spirit. You are to follow the Spirit as your captain and guide, and you are to resist that captain, the flesh. 
There are two contrary captains in you, the spirit and the flesh. You are to follow the spirit as your captain and guide, and you are to resist that captain, the flesh. To walk in the spirit or by the spirit is to let your conduct be governed by him rather than by your sinful human nature. The word walk that is used in verse 16 is in the present tense, which indicates a continual habitual action. We are to walk continually in the Spirit. We could translate this literally, keep on continually walking. That word walk is in the imperative mood, which indicates that human effort is necessary. It is a command. I say then, walk in the Spirit. This is more, brothers and sisters, this is more than passive submission. It implies effort, commitment, and action. Walking in the Spirit is not sitting in idleness waiting for the Spirit to do battle on your behalf. To walk in the Spirit is to actively and aggressively strive to do what the Spirit calls you to do. You are to keep on continually walking, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. We are to respond to the Spirit and submit to the Spirit moment by moment, day by day, step by step. But now you say, well, how do I know? How do I know what the Spirit calls me to do? Do I listen for a voice? Do I follow my feelings? Do I determine His will through an emotional experience? Do I look for a sign or listen for a sound in the wind? Do I wait for an inner prompting? How do I know what the Spirit calls me to do? Is there some kind of mystical communication or revelation? Congregation, it's not really so difficult to know His mind. We know the mind of the Holy Spirit through the Word that He inspired. We know His will through daily intake of the Word of God. We know the mind of the Spirit not only by reading and memorizing the Word, but also by meditating on it. The Spirit of God speaks to us through the Word. He does not whisper in your ear, write a message in the clouds, or pump you up into emotional hysteria to communicate His will. He does not throw you backward onto the floor or strike you with a glorious vision. The Spirit of God speaks through the Word that He inspired. As you prayerfully read, study, and meditate on it, the Holy Spirit works to illumine your heart and mind. Illumination is His work. The same Spirit who inspired the Scriptures enables God's people to hear, receive, and rightly understand its message. The Holy Spirit does not give new information or new revelation beyond what is found in Scripture. Instead, the Spirit works to illumine what is already revealed in Scripture. And that's why the hymn writer said, I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening skies. In other words, no transcendent experience. 
but take the dimness of my soul away. But take the dimness of my soul away. The Spirit opens our understanding. He gives eyes to see, a heart to embrace, and a mind that is receptive to God's truth. He works with the Word and through the Word so that God's people are able to know His will. Therefore, to walk in the Spirit is to walk each day deliberately striving to understand and and apply the Spirit-inspired Word to your life. It is to strive to live a Christ-like life, to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. To walk in the Spirit is to pattern your life after the teaching and example of Jesus Christ. It is to be persistently active in studying the Word, persistently resisting sin in all its form. It's to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. To walk in the Spirit is to live in a manner that pleases the Spirit. Those of you who are happily married, it is your desire to get to know what pleases your spouse, right? If you have a close relationship, you desire to know what is pleasing to your husband or wife or what is not pleasing to him or her. The more time you spend together and the closer you become, the more you learn the mind and heart of your spouse. Sometimes senior couples seem to be able to read each other's minds, right? If you know the will of your spouse, and if you love your spouse, then you strive to walk in a manner that pleases him or her. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you seek to live in such a way that your love for your partner is clearly displayed. Well, that's what it's like to walk in the Spirit. When you have a living relationship with the third person of the Trinity, when the Holy Spirit lives with you and in you, when He reveals to you the glory of the gospel and makes you share in Christ and all His benefits, when the Holy Spirit reveals to you the great love of the triune God, then you strive to walk in a manner that pleases Him. The more you read and love the Scriptures, the more you come to know the mind and will of the Holy Spirit. And the more you know the mind and will of the Holy Spirit, the more you seek to bring your life under His control. And as you bring your life under His control, the fruit of the Spirit becomes manifested. Children, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you walk in the Spirit, all this wonderful fruit begins to appear. The congregation, we should consider it an immense privilege that the Holy Spirit, who with the Father and the Son is eternal God, dwells with you and in you. For it is through Him that we find joy, peace, and meaning in life. In times of trial, 
sorrow and confusion. He is your guide, helper, counselor, and comforter. He comforts you in various ways through the promises of the gospel, through fellow believers, and of course, through His own indwelling. The Spirit is always present to bring comfort to the children of God. Yes, when we walk in the Spirit, we are truly blessed. He dwells with you in this life, and in the words of our catechism, He will remain with me forever. He will remain with me forever. But then we have yet a third question to consider. We've asked, who is the Spirit? We've also asked, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Now we want to consider the question, what's the alternative to walking in the Spirit? Look again at our text, verse 16. What's the alternative to walking in the Spirit? I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. What's the promise? When you live a Spirit-controlled life, you will no longer so readily follow through on your sinful desires. If you don't walk in the Spirit, what's the alternative? The alternative is fulfilling the lust of the flesh. If you don't follow the Spirit as your captain, the flesh will be your captain. And what happens when the flesh is your captain? Look with me, please, to verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. This list includes sexual sins, sins of false worship, social sins, and the sin of drunkenness. When the flesh is your captain, when you come under the control of the flesh, and your conduct is governed by the flesh, then this, verses 19 through 21, can be the result. Now, brothers and sisters, the movie industry may do a wonderful job at making these works of the flesh look attractive, rewarding, and satisfying. But are they really? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness are all put up on the big screen. They're all made to look exciting and gratifying. But are they really? Idolatry and sorcery are depicted as legitimate means of worship, valid ways to find peace with God. But are they really? Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and envy are often legitimized as means of, a, of asserting your rights and building your self-esteem. But do they really bring happiness? Drunkenness and revelries are also put up on the big screen as though they are exciting and entertaining. The party life is great. But is it really? Is it really? When the flesh is your captain, does it result in pleasure? Perhaps for a time, yes, yes. Sin is pleasurable for the moment, but in the long run, 
the works of the flesh, the desires of the sinful nature always produce pain. You don't believe me? Talk to someone who has suffered the trauma of having an unwanted child because of fornication. Talk to someone who has suffered the emotional pain of abortion. Someone who has killed their child who is the product of fornication. Talk to someone suffering from a, a sexually transmitted disease. Talk to someone whose marriage fell apart because of adultery. Talk to someone whose home is filled with contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and envy. Talk to someone whose life resembles an exploded building because of drunkenness and wild partying. Talk to someone who has lost his job, his business, his wife, his children, because his life was characterized by the works of the flesh listed in verses 19 through 21. Do the works of the flesh bring lasting happiness? Absolutely not. And where do the works of the flesh ultimately lead? Look at the end of verse 21. Where do they ultimately lead? Those who practice such things will not, what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Young people, if the flesh is your captain, if you fulfill the lusts of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's that simple. If your conduct is governed by the flesh, if you surrender to the demands of the sinful nature, if you allow the flesh to control your life, you will never know the eternal joys of God's kingdom. So I say to you this morning, as the apostle said to the Galatians, walk in the Spirit, keep on continually walking. May the Spirit be your captain, guide, and friend. May He be the source of joy in your life. The promise we find in our text is that those who walk in the Spirit will no longer follow through on their sinful desires. Instead, they will be adorned with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, resembling the character of who? Jesus Christ Himself. Resembling the character of Jesus Christ Himself. And if there's anyone here this morning who knows nothing about a relationship with the indwelling Spirit of God, Jesus said what? Ask. Ask. In Luke 11, He spoke these words. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Then ask Him. Ask Him. Ask for the Holy Spirit and then walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
Yes, the battle between your sinful nature and your regenerate nature will continue throughout the course of your earthly life. Again and again, you will be pulled by the flesh and spirit in two different directions at once. You will experience a violent confrontation between opposing forces. Your spiritual life will always be a struggle in this world. But be encouraged, brothers and sisters, for the battle between the flesh and the spirit will not last forever. A day is coming when the spirit will gain complete victory. And the desires of the sinful nature will assault you no more. The flesh will be wrestled down and pushed out of the ring forever. Walk in the Spirit now and praise the Spirit for the victory that is yet to come. He will grant you growth and sanctification in this life and He will grant you complete freedom from the flesh in the life to come. Complete freedom Imagine that complete freedom that you may honor, praise, and serve the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Freedom forever. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you will come and indwell each and every one of us here this morning. Come to us as individuals. Come to us as parents. Come to us as children. We think of John, of whom it was said that the Spirit was upon him from his mother's womb. We pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon each and every one of us and that we would no longer cater to the demands of the flesh. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that we may acknowledge you as a divine person, equal with God the Father, God the Son. We thank you that you inspired Holy Scripture so that we may know how to walk in the Spirit, to know and love and apply the Spirit-inspired Word to our lives. We pray that none of us here would grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit. Soften our hearts. Cause us to be yielded to you. Help us to recognize, Lord, that the works of the flesh only result in pain and eternal death. So may the fruit of the Spirit be evident in our lives and the lives of our children. Oh, Lord, may we display that before you and before each other and before the world in which we live. 
Lord, would you receive our praises as we conclude this? And truly, may the Spirit of God dwell within our hearts. We ask no dreams, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden tearing of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening skies, but take the dimness of our soul away. This is our prayer. This is our plea. Amen.